Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 8th. 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. The news, as it has been for the last two weeks, is dominated uh, by Ukraine. Uh, New York Times leads today with ban Biden banning Russian oil imports. Lots of very um, troubling footage of uh, wounded and dead civilians. It's, uh, it, it's, it's not pleasant to open a newspaper these days. Uh, the Financial Times um, has something, uh, they lead with Biden banning U.S. imports of Russian oil in bid to punish Putin. Uh, the crisis, of course, has been personalized, maybe not so much Biden versus Putin, but the West versus Putin. And um, we did a show over the weekend with the uh, with a very uh, very talented uh, social critic analyst of uh, Russia and Ukraine, Peter Pomerantz, who argued that uh, Ukraine, the Ukraine crisis, isn't really about Ukraine. Uh, it's really, of course, about Putin, or at least from our point of view, it seems to be about Putin. Uh, Putin uh, uh, Pomerantz had a piece a couple of weeks ago in The Guardian asking what's going on in Putin's head. He seems to have been corrupted by power, or at least that's what many people believe, although perhaps he was corrupted even before power. Uh, my guest today has done a lot of thinking about what power does to us. He's the author of Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. Uh, his name is Brian Class, and he is joining us from Winchester in England. Uh, Brian, ha do you think that Putin has been corrupted by power, or was he just corrupted when he popped out of his mother's womb? <laughs> yeah, that's the question that I start the book with, right? That Does power corrupt, or are corruptible people drawn to power? Uh, in some cases, it's both, and I think in Vladimir Putin's case, it is both. Um, I think that he is somebody who had to have certain characteristics in order to become a KGB agent, in order to rise the ranks in the KGB, and also to ultimately become the president of Russia at a time in which, you know, sort of the, the most ruthless rose to the top after uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the oligarchs took power in the late 1990s. So, you know, I think what's happened since then is there has been a massive uh, brainwashing of his own worldview by his propaganda machine. And I think this is what's happening that, that helps explain what's going on in Ukraine is that, you know, he's surrounded by people who fear telling him the truth. And he's such the product of disinformation and lies that I think he's begun to believe them. So I think in his case, he's sort of both. Do you in your book, uh, Corruptible Brian, treat power as something which is malignant? I went... Um... A few years ago, I was making a show about uh, how to fix democracy. And I went to Dresden and filmed outside the KGB office where the young uh, KGB officer Vladimir Putin was surrounded uh, in uh, 1989. It seems as if, at least in, in the reading of many people, that kind of experience turned him. It undermined his psyche. 
Uh, is, in your view, power malignant or a, a desire, a love of power? Is it a form of malignancy, a condition, a mental condition? Yeah, so power definitely does warp your thinking and it actually changes your brain chemistry. Uh, we have a lot of evidence from psychology and we have a, a lot of evidence from neuroscience as well. I, I talk in the book about how um, studies that have involved manipul manipulating hierarchy for macaque monkeys uh, has actually shown dopamine changes in their brain, brain structure changes, et cetera. We have lots of evidence this is the case. But I also think that there's a missing variable in what we often talk about, which is how the system attract certain kinds of people. One of my favorite studies in the book is a study in which these economics researchers ask, ask students to roll a dice 42 times, and then they self-report their scores. But every time they get a six, they get more money. And because they can self-report their scores, they can lie. But because statistics show the regularities of dice, they can actually infer who lied. And the point is that when they did this study in India, the people who lied about their dice rolls to get them the extra cash were disproportionately likely to say that they wanted to become civil servants. They wanted to join government service where they could take kickbacks and bribes. When they did the exact same study in Denmark, the results were inverted. In other words, all the clean, honest students wanted to go into the civil service and all the liars wanted to go into business. So it was one of these instances in which you can see how a system can affect who signs up for positions of power. And those systems also determine the degree to which power corrupts because you know, the dictator of Turkmenistan is going to get warped by power much more than if you're, say, you know, the coach of a, a local sports team. And I think the scale and the context really, really matter when it comes to how much power changes your brain. Is it system or culture? You bring up Denmark. We always bring up Denmark in these kinds of conversations. Denmark is always the model of how everything works. Might Danish culture simply be more responsible and respectable towards power? Yeah, with these things, there's always a wrinkle, right? So uh, first off, Denmark is home to Danske Bank, which is one of the worst money laundering scandals in modern history. So it's not, it's not a perfect culture in terms of uh, corruption. But I will say that there's a, there's a wonderful study that hits at this question of, corruption, of culture versus accountability really, really well. So uh, the United Nations diplomats have diplomatic immunity. And as a result, you have a really nice natural experiment because you've got these guys from all over the world who can get away with crimes, basically. And specifically, they can get away with parking tickets. So over the span of about a decade, these diplomats from the UN with diplomatic immunity racked up 150,000 parking tickets, $18 million unpaid, right? They didn't have to pay the fine. And what you found when you looked at the origin of the parking tickets is that the Norwegians, the Germans, the Japanese, the Danish pretty much didn't park illegally, even though they could get away with it. Whereas the, the, the places with cultures of corruption, you know, Egypt, Yemen, et cetera, had sometimes 190 plus parking tickets per diplomat. But the kicker was that in 2002, Mike Bloomberg said, enough is enough. I'm going to take away your car, even if I can't take, I, if I can't force you to pay the fine, but I'm going to take away your car. Uh, all of a sudden, the enforcement kicked in. And in a day, literally, all the Yemenis and Egyptians started parking like the Norwegians. And if you look at the data that shows how long someone was in New York, the longer a Norwegian or German or Japanese diplomat was in New York, the more likely they were to start parking illegally. So it's a, it's a mix of incentives, culture, and accountability when it comes to behaving badly and breaking rules. Who's your inspiration in, in terms of theorists of power? Um, we had David Runciman on the show last year, my old friend, University of Cambridge, prof uh, professor of politics. He has an obsession with, and I think an understandable and a very smart obsession with Thomas Hobbes. 
Is your analysis of power Hobbesian? Do you argue or do you think that power is ugly but necessary, essential, if we're to escape the state of nature which Putin seems to have unleashed on the Ukraine? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I think power and hierarchy are inevitable. I, I talk about this in chapter two of the book, The Evolution of Power, that talks about how hierarchy is expanded throughout human history. But I start the book with the, this sort of juxtaposition of two seemingly states of nature. They're actual desert island shipwrecks that are juxtaposed, and they, they, they break our mold of what we expect. So in one instance, there's a totally flat egalitarian society that's formed by these teenage boys who get shipwrecked on this island called Atta off Tonga. And they work together completely. It's like a real life Lord of the Flies. It was popularized by this Dutch historian Rutger Bregman a couple of years ago. This story, and it's an it's an amazing tale because it's it's yeah. But Rutger uses these. You know, Rutger. I've known Rutger for years. He uses hmm. these for his own, for better or worse, for his own ideological purposes. Right? You can always. The thing with these stories, Brian, is you can always come up with stories. Anyone can find a story that suits their ideology. Where do you stand? You you seem to be a little slippery here. Are you a Hobbesian? Or, for example, are you a follower of David Graeber, whose posthumous new book, The Dawn of Everything, suggests that uh, both Hobbes and indeed Rousseau were wrong about the organization of human society? Where do you stand, Brian? Well, I think, I think that Hobbes has much to tell us about what can happen without structures. But I also think that when you think about the sweeping uh, you know, scale of human history, there's a lot of evidence which David Graeber argues against, that there was a significant chunk of human history in which there was more egalitarian societies. Now, Graeber is obviously revising that idea and, and challenging some of the accepted wisdom from evolutionary anthropology and so on uh, about the sort of the, the neat story about bands of humans sort of working together in non-hierarchical ways. I talk about this a lot in that, that second chapter. And there is some evidence to suggest that there was more hierarchy than we previously thought. But I mean, I think to me that, that power is something that's malleable. I mean, it depends on how it functions based on the moment in history and the systems around it. I think having sort of a Hobbesian view about power is reductionist because it creates a view that, that something is fixed. And I'm much more optimistic than that. I think power is something that can change depending on how the system operates and how it interacts with the people who gravitate towards it. And my main point in this book is that the way you set up systems of power attract different kinds of people. So if you set up a good system of power, you're going to attract better people and it's going to corrupt them less. And I think this is the missing element. We focus so much attention on who's in power. All of our headlines are about who's in power. And we don't focus on who never tried to get power in the first place because those people are invisible. And so, you know, to me, the system element is crucial and it's something that's not easily reduced to Hobbes versus Locke versus Rousseau. I take that point on the structures, but then what would you make of the Apple story? First of all, we had Steve Jobs, remarkable visionary, brilliant man, but a monster in the Putin-Trump model. And then Jobs died. Steve, uh, sorry, Tim Cook took over. The opposite of, 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 uh, of, of Jobs, a very reasonable man, um, a man where there are never any scandals. And, and both men have run Apple with incredible success uh, in, in an identical corporate structure. So how would you make sense of that, of the shift in Apple from Jobs to Cook? Well, I'm, I'm not as familiar with the details of those two men. Um, you don't have to be familiar. Everybody knows that Jobs was a monster and everybody knows that Cook 
is a very pleasant, reasonable man. Doesn't mean he's always pleasant and reasonable, but he's the anti-jobs. Okay, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not my area of expertise to know whether Jobs is a monster. I haven't heard that portrayal of him in, in that sense. But I, I think that this is something where you can have different recipes for success in different environments. I think the, the evidence suggests that over the long run, actually, these systems that are highly constrained, like a Fortune 500 company is, in those contexts, you can have people who may be better at getting to the top based on their behavior as being sort of virtuous and so on, but often power does corrupt them. And that's the thesis of Dacher Keltner, who's one of the main researchers about the psychology of power. I think the, the, the problem is that a lot of the research into the psychology of power and how this interacts with structures is based in highly regulated, regulated contexts, right? Like most psychology research is in college classrooms. It's studying businesses in the United States or Britain. So, you know, what I was doing in my research, and this is where I was sitting down with dictators and former despots around the world and you know people who were involved in rebel movements and generals and so on in unconstrained cultures was finding something quite different that actually being a aggressive power hungry abuser is something that's a very good recipe for success in those systems so you know i think that that's that's the problem is that you you try to have this one size fits all explanation and i think it really depends on the culture around the person and if jobs really was a, a monster then i think that his luck eventually would have run out i mean this is something where Do you highly regulated Brian, uh, you, you have a podcast power corrupts um, and that's obviously, in some ways, the theme of your book. I saw an interview you had about your book with uh, Mary Trump, of course, the author of Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man, in which she, as a therapist, pathologizes power. Do you think you're pathologizing power? What I don't understand is, you know, when you talk to someone like Mary Trump, who will pathologize the power of her uncle. If you talk, for example, about George Soros, who we had a show about earlier this week with Peter Osnos, um, or Zelensky, who has become a hero in the West, uh, people won't talk about the pathologization of power. So how do we make sense of the Soroses and the Zelenskys versus the Trumps and the Putins? Well, there's a few things. So first off, it's a question of disproportionate, right? So in other words, what's disproportionate in power? That doesn't mean that everybody in power experiences something. It's something that's an outlier based upon powerful people. So in that realm, I do talk about dark triad traits, which are overrepresented in the halls of power. And this includes psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. We have good data on this. And I think it's a very important piece of the What does that mean, Machiavellianism? So it's a, it's a psychological trait in which basically you are someone who is manipulative of, the, of other people because you believe the ends justifies the means. And it combines with this, in these other two traits, narcissism and psychopathy or being a psychopath, to form what's called the dark triad. And, and if you look at the data on psychopaths, which admittedly is slightly subjective and open to interpretation because of definitions and the diagnoses and so on, the evidence suggests that between four times and 100 times more psychopaths are in positions of leadership in modern society than the general population. That's a small percentage, right? But it's a generally destructive group of people, so they warrant more scrutiny. Now, when you're asking me about people like Zelensky, who's you know, become, quite rightly, I think, a global hero overnight, I think George Soros, who most particularly, I think, our, our viewers, our listeners really like, a man who gives a huge amount of his wealth to noble causes. Sure. So I think I think power is still is still corrosive to those people. I mean, I think there is an inevitable aspect. Everything's of corrosive, Brian. Not having power is corrosive. What does that word even mean, corrosive? 
Well, what I mean is that it goes to your head. So well, the evidence suggests that, that actually, when power goes to your head, I mean, what did you say? What is wrong with, I mean, for somebody like Soros or, or mm. Zelensky, I'm assuming that Zelensky, for example, is getting a huge hit from being a great hero in the world. Isn't that, isn't that a reason why he's behaving like a hero? Because he's willing to essentially become a martyr for his country and that's gone to his head for better or worse? Well, I think it depends on on how it's affected them. Zelensky has an emergency he's dealing with. So at the moment, I, I think it's a secondary concern whether some of the, the effects of power will play out psychologically for him or not. I mean, he's trying to survive a war and assassination attempts. But I do think that even sort of seemingly benevolent people do get warped by power, right? So I, I, I spoke to Andrew Yang, for example, former Democratic presidential candidate. And one of the things he said, which I think makes a lot of sense for how this actually operates, is he's like, I walk into a room everybody stands on their feet for a year and applauds me. And they laugh at every joke I say. And you start to think that there's nothing that you can do wrong. Yeah, but right? the funny thing about Yang, um, Brian, is that that's not true. He's not a particularly impressive person. He was a failed politician. That's what he wanted to happen, but it didn't. And he stopped being candidate for president. So I, I, I don't buy that idea that everyone wants to be Followed. I mean, Zelensky seems to know how to do the right thing, which conforms with. Um, I mean, I mean, the, the, my maybe I'm not asking this question right. It's not clear to me what the difference is between Zelensky and Putin. It's just that we like Zelensky and we don't like Putin. I, I would certainly not agree with that characteristic. I mean, I think that there is a massive I like massive Zelensky. Point. I don't like Putin. I mean, I'm not suggesting that Putin is in any way heroic. But they both have power and they're using it in one way that we like and one way that we don't. Well, I think that Zelensky is significantly more constrained in his power, at least up until the war was, which is good and important. I think also the way that he's wielding power for, for trying to stand up for justice and peace and anti-war, whereas Putin is murdering people. I think these are, these are pretty important differences. And, and, I, and I take that point. But isn't then ultimately your, I, I don't know if this is the right word, your theory reductive. Power is fine when it's used in ways that you approve or not when it isn't. But I don't think that's what I'm trying to argue about. What I'm trying to argue about is what power does to people and who seeks it. And I think that's yeah. an important aspect of this. So, you know, what, what I'm saying about Andrew Yang isn't a judgment of Andrew Yang. What I'm saying is that it warps your thinking. Right. So Zelensky will eventually probably succumb to the fact that it will warp his thinking. He, for well, example, let me jump on that, Brian. Warp your thinking. What does that mean? You mean you have. Well, I, would, I would like to explain it, but I can't I can't I can't finish my sentences. So if I can finish my sentences, I will I will explain it. So uh, what what I'm talking about is that there is an aspect of psychological change that comes with power where you start to view people below you as abstractions. There's an asymmetric relationship that begins to create a dynamic where you view them as disposable or lesser than you. There's additionally evidence that neurological changes exist when you inhabit power such that you begin to believe that you can, uh, for example, create what's called illusory control. Illusory control is the belief that you can control outcomes more than you actually can. So these things combine to create really corrosive effects. And I think this is where people in positions of power don't always turn out to wield power badly, partly because they're constrained. But also, I do think it affects their thinking. I think they believe that people below them are less worthy or less equal or less worthy of consideration when it comes to making decisions. And that creates dynamics that can lead to abuse. 
That doesn't always lead to abuse, but I think recognizing these effects is important. And then the flip side of this is that there is a self-selection effect for power. So if you have a dynamic in which, for example, you have a police department that is recruiting people with depictions of policing where being a cop looks like being part of an occupying army, then I think you're going to get more people who are ex-military people who want to walk around with a badge and a gun because they get off on the power, right? So now, of course, in Ukraine, this is not some pristine place before the war. You, you had to sort of have sharp elbows. I'm not trying to w whitewash that aspect of how politics was probably quite combative when Zelensky rose to power. But it is a fundamentally different thing to operate in a broadly democratic country compared to an authoritarian dictatorship in which you've basically set up personalist structures around yourself. And, and I think that's why there is likely to be a significantly stronger effect for power that's unconstrained around Vladimir Putin, because he doesn't ever get told he's wrong. He doesn't ever experience the suffering of the people around him. He doesn't ever understand that they're not abstractions. So, you know, I think these aspects combine to create, you know, in Russia, you've got a KGB agent self-selecting into basically what is a highly personalized oligarchic system that's then going to get warped over time, 22 years in power, uh, that I think is going to cause him to discount risk, discount the lives of other people, and ultimately engage in significantly more abuse. And I think that's what's happened, why he miscalculated so badly, because ultimately this is a massive miscalculation that he engaged in. And, you know, yes, okay, Zelensky is someone who has become a global hero because he's juxtaposed against an anti-hero. He's not a saint, but he is behaving in significantly more responsible ways. And one of the points I make in the book is occasionally you get lucky, right? Occasionally there's a moment of, of a test where, you know, in Afghanistan, the people flee, like the leaders flee. They take the money and run um, when, when things go bad. In, in Ukraine, he's staying and he's going to potentially martyr himself. Agreed. That's good for the people of Ukraine. It's been hugely influential in pushing back against Russia. My point is you can't just wait for these people. You have to engineer systems that ensures that better leaders get in power in the first place, rather than hoping we'll get lucky when a crisis strikes, because you can't test. We, we never knew what Vladimir Zelensky would do until Ukraine was invaded. And now we know. But, you know, if you could have predicted this two weeks ago, you, you, you would have been a, a person who could make a lot of money betting on things because, a lot of people probably would have thought, well, you know, when it gets tough, he, he might flee. He's a comedian. Who knows? So I think that's that's what I'm trying to get at is this this warping combined with the self-selection effect, uh, explaining some of the dynamics around these people. So we're going to take a break, Brian. And afterwards, I want to talk about engineering the system so that we get more Zelensky's and I guess Soros's than um, than Putin. So we'll take a short break and then we'll be back with Brian Klass, the author of Corruptible talking about how we can fix power. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page, um, 
in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Brian Klass, the author of Corruptible, um, relatively new book uh, about uh, a relatively new book about who gets power and how it changes. It came out last year, claimed book. He's also um, the, uh, the presenter of a very popular podcast, Power Corrupts. We spent the first half of the show talking about how indeed power corrupts. And we're going to talk in the second half, Brian, about how we can create, as you described in the first half, structures, architectures, which will make power corrupt less. In other words, fewer Putins and more Zelenskys. How are we going to do that, Brian? Well, there's a few things. I'll, I'll, I'll start with two of them that both draw on the power of randomness. So I talked previously about the self-selection effect. Um, and I think this is one of the major problems with, with power is that you have people who self-select in the positions of power. So the first thing I have as an idea is that in systems of business and in politics, particularly in democratic countries, we should have shadow boards and shadow uh, parliaments or house uh, of representatives, for example, in which people are randomly allocated into these positions as oversight. So it's not to replace the politicians, not to replace the board. It's just that you provide identical information, identical access to experts, et cetera. And you ask this sort of shadow board or shadow parliament, shadow house of representatives, the same questions that you ask the real board, the real house of representatives, the real parliament, and see where the divergence happens. And the reason I suggest this is because it would eliminate the self-selection effect and it would expose when politicians or business leaders are doing things that are divergent from what sort of an ordinary person would do. And that's why it's not binding, because you often need specialist knowledge. You don't want to have, you know, the average person who's doing jury duty do a nuclear test ban treaty. So I think this is an, an element of accountability that would help in systems. How, like uh, uh, how different is this, Brian, from the citizen assembly experiments that we had, for example, uh, I do a show um, called uh, How to Fix Democracy as well. And we've done a number of shows. I had the Yale political theorist, Ellen Landemore, for example, on the show talking about citizen assemblies. They're much more popular, uh, I think, in Europe, particularly in Belgium um, than, uh, than in the United States. But is this the citizen assembly model for power? Yeah, although so the, the citizen assembly draws back to ancient Greece, uh, where they used a device called the claritarian to basically set up citizen councils that actually ruled. Uh, it's, a, it's a process called sortition. And I, I disagree with it in the sense that I don't think that we should actually give power and replace politicians 
via random selection. I think we should use it for oversight. You know, you can imagine a board, for example, and you talked about Apple before. You can imagine a shadow board drawn randomly from Apple's staff, employees, that could provide some important checks on what the actual board is doing because they potentially have very divergent goals and very divergent interests and very potentially myopia that comes out of being in power. So I think it's an important check. Well, can I, can I just jump in on the yeah. Apple front again? I don't want to be Apple <laughs> fixated here. But let's say we'd had that with Apple. Jobs was, as everybody knows who worked with him, a monster, but a genius as well. Had you had that shadow board, some of his more outrageous ideas like building an iPhone would have got killed by the shadow board. So what is the role of genius here when it comes to actually using the best bits of genius and controlling the evil bits? Well, I think that you can always come up with an example where perhaps the the sort of conventional wisdom was wrong and the, the genius who was, as you put it, a monster was right. But I think on balance, the society would be much better if we had people who were in positions of power who had to answer to some level of accountability. Um, I, I think that's been borne out throughout history that, that unbridled power is a very, very dangerous thing. I also think one other area of randomness I wanted to talk about that I think is, is worth considering is the idea of random randomized integrity tests, which are used in police departments. The NYPD has set this up, but there's not really, they're not that widespread. So what they did, what they set up, I, I interviewed you know, the former head of internal affairs at NYPD. And what he invented was this idea of sort of sting operations for cops, where they go into a, uh, you know, like a, a fake crime scene that they thought was real. 20,000 cash on the table, a bunch of cocaine. And then they basically see what they do. And if they take some of the money, say, let's say they take six grand and they take, you know, report 14,000 in stolen funds, uh, they're arrested or fired. And, and what's really interesting about this example isn't, it's not just a, an anecdote. It's that when you did 500 of these integrity tests in the NYPD, and then you survey the police officers in the NYPD and say, were you subject to one of these sting operations? 12,000 people said yes. So 11,500 were in real crime scenes that they thought were setups. And I think for people who are in positions that are particularly prone to abuse, embezzlement, abuse in the police, politicians, et cetera, I think this mechanism is really important to create accountability. And you're not going to do this in Putin's Russia, right? I mean, let's be honest. There's, there's not always going to be a solution that's going to fit every possible scenario. But I think in, in Western democracies, a lot of the abuse, embezzlement, the sort of collusion with lobbyists, et cetera, could be very easily exposed with at least the fear that some of these sting operations were operating. You know, I, I'm in the UK now where there was this sort of accusation of chumocracy during the pandemic. And I think, you know, if, they, if, if the ministers feared that some of those companies that were producing bids were fake and put out by journalists, I think they might have thought twice before sort of giving it to their, their mate via WhatsApp. And I think that's also the case with the citizen assembly idea where if you asked contracts to be awarded based on a shadow parliament, they never would have given, uh, you know, Matt Hancock's buddy uh, a contract based on his, you know, loyalty to Matt Hancock. And I think, I think that's where you can exploit some of these tweaks. I, I talk about eight other ideas in the book, but I mean, these are some of the ones that, that, um, you know, just to start with provide an understanding that we can tweak systems to make them a bit better. None of them are silver bullets. If they were silver bullets, we'd have done them by now. Um, but I'm a bit worried that we're on autopilot with power. In other words, we just sort of do what was done previously. And that's not good enough because most people are very dissatisfied with how power operates in modern society. We did a show, um, I think it was last year, maybe in a couple of years ago with the uh, Georgetown law professor, Rosa Brooks, a liberal, um, who joined the DC police to see what it was like 
and then wrote about it. It's actually a really good book. It's called Tangled Up in Blue. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Mm, yep. My sense from that book is that she became, as when she joined the police, uh, she became more and more sympathetic to them. I mean, she, she wasn't an abuser. She didn't go around beating people up. Not that all police people do that. But what about that danger is once you fall into the institution, even if you're uh, a liberal intellectual like Rosa Brooks, um, that you're going to become like the police. Yeah, so I I spoke to a lot of people in policing, ex-cops, people who were involved in being prison guards, uh, recruitment for police, etc., I think there's a couple of things that are, that are worth pointing out. One is that rotation really matters when it comes to beat cops and their partners and also to crime units. So, you know, this is one of the insights that someone who used to work very high up in the Metropolitan Police told me is that if you have uh, collusion between two, two cops who are partners, it's very easy to start to get the sense that they're going to they're going to keep, you know, sort of uh, protect your back. If you get if you if you get caught, they're not going to snitch on you. The sort of blue wall of silence. And so they started implementing rotation through these partnerships and they actually worked very, very well. But I, I think there's a bigger problem with the police. And I think the, the debate around police reform is wrong in what it's focusing on, particularly in the United States, because what I think is happening is we focus exclusively on what the police do. That's why we have body camera debates. It's why we have discussions about de-escalation training. I think we've lopped off most of the problem, which is who the police are, who self-selects into the uniform based on the recruitment strategies that we have. So first off, we have massive incentives for people who are ex-military. That makes a lot of sense if you're a SWAT team leader. It makes a lot less sense if you're a rural cop in, you know, let's say, uh, outstate Minnesota or something like that in a population of 500 people. And the second thing is that we've militarized the police departments so that people who want to sort of drive around in literally a tank in some instances are keen to join. And I, I found, you know, some recruitment videos that are, are just beyond the pale. I mean, this one from Doraville, Georgia, involves guys literally in camouflage in a tank throwing smoke grenades with the Punisher logo on screen. You know, it's the, the sort of vigilante anti-hero. And you think like who signs up when they see that video? So I spoke to the head of New Zealand police recruitment. And what she said is, look, we know there's a self-selection problem. So we designed a recruitment scheme called Do You Care Enough to Be a Cop that depicts policing exactly the opposite way, right? Extremely diverse, extremely different profiles of who you'd think to be a police officer and their community service officers engaged in a video that basically is a series of gags, right? So like it, it went viral on YouTube, all this type of stuff. And ultimately they're chasing a dog. So <laughs> the combination between, or so juxtaposition between like the Punisher logo on the tank and like the border collie and do you care enough to be a, to- uh, to be a cop? Um, it, bore, it, it, it bore out in terms of who applied. They had way more applicants, way more diverse, different personality profiles, and the relationship between the police and specifically minority communities in New Zealand improved. And all they had to do was like a glitzy recruitment video and an ad campaign, and it made a huge difference. And so, you know, my point with a lot of stuff around power is it's not rocket science. It's like if you portray policing as an occupying army, people who want to be in an occupying army are going to sign up for it. And so this self-selection effect, I think, is crucial to understanding um, the, 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 the police officer problem in the first place with police reform. But then what you talk about with Rosa Brooks, I mean, I think that is also part of it. You have cultures, uh, the blue wall of silence, the cultures around people, et cetera, um, that can be changed. And that, that's where I think rotation and oversight, like I was talking about with the sting operations, can really ensure that after you recruit well, 
you don't have people succumb to the temptations of abuse, embezzlement, and, and, and so on that happens with policing sometimes and violence as well. We always have those examples. So again, we, we had the, you, your example from Denmark. Now we have New Zealand. I, I'm not convinced because, again, these seem to be cultural issues and it, work, it what works in New Zealand and Denmark doesn't work in the United States. But that's another issue. Let's talk about technology, Brian. What about the role of technology in, in creating perhaps more surveillance, more accountability? Uh, I'm in Silicon Valley and Web3 now is all the rage, a blockchain-based technology um, which will reveal all truths and do away with hierarchy. Can technology help in terms of making power less corrupting? Yeah, it depends on, on how you're applying the technology, and it depends on where the technology is surveilling people. So one of the arguments I make in the book is that a lot of the surveillance through technology that happens in the workplace is pointed at the wrong people. In other words, you know, we have these open plan offices, which are sort of like the modern panopticon uh, of surveillance. And yet a lot of the malfeasance that happens in corporate society happens behind closed doors in corner offices and in boards. And so, you know, when you think about like the Enron scandal, it's not it's not somebody who's taking a lunch break that's 10 minutes too long. And yet what's happened? Oh, we've got new sensors that check whether you're actually in your chair when you say you are. So I, I, I lament this surveillance in the corporate world that's focusing on the people who are most unlikely to actually bring the company down. But, you know, on, on top of this, I think that there's there's an element here we have to think about with with surveillance that we don't want to bring a, create a dystopian state. I mean, we don't want to have, you know, constant, constant feelings of being watched, but a little bit of selective watching for people in power is very, very useful. And I, I think this is something where, um, you know, if you're talking about petty corruption, technology can be a godsend. So, you know, for example, in India, there used to be a massive number of bribes taken on driving tests. They solved the problem in the, man, in the span of a week by just putting sensors in so that the car, when it parallel parked, wasn't open to the discretion of the in, in instructor. They couldn't take a bribe. It either was inside the lines or it wasn't. So, you know, clever deployments of technology, especially in petty corruption, can be hugely, hugely beneficial. It's not going to be the solution for the Vladimir Putins or the dictator of Turkmenistan's of the world. It's going to be something where we have to think carefully about, you know, how we balance out surveillance and also focusing it on the actual people who cause these problems, which usually are those who are least watched in modern society. Brian, apart from yourself, uh, who's your favorite writer on power, either historical or contemporary? Who do you think makes the most sense of it? Well, I really, I, one of the things that I, I enjoyed in researching this book is that I was exposed to fields that I'm, I'm not part of. So I'm a political scientist, right? And, and I really enjoyed reading Dacher Keltner's work on power. He's a, a psychologist out at Berkeley. I flew out, interviewed him, and spoke to a bunch of people in his lab. And what's fascinating is that there's, you know, there, there's all these sort of armchair speculations that, that we make, you know, often in politics about people in power without engaging into the actually what's happening in their brain. And, and, and what I thought is, is, is fascinating and long overdue is to, to draw connections in these fields, right? I, I was amazed to see, okay, evolutionary biologists are trying to figure out what's the rise of the strong man coming from. Psychologists are trying to figure out how your thinking patterns change. Neuro neuroscientists are looking at dopamine and other aspects of neurochemistry uh, related to hi hierarchy and power. And then political scientists are, are talking about systems as our economists. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is to draw these people together. And Dacker is really, really good at this. Um, we're hoping to collaborate at some point because 
he's, you know, readily acknowledged. I haven't been in rooms with sort of former despots and war criminals and so on. He's really sort of more of the guy who studies corporate power in the United States and those sort of uh, environments. But I don't have, you know, an MRI machine. So <laughs> it's one of the things where uh, hopefully we can collaborate and, and get, get even better answers in the future. Um, but I do love his work on power. It's fantastic. So you'd like an MRI machine, Brian? You think that would well, help? You, you, you asked that in jest, but uh, the pandemic actually forced me to cancel a trip. I was planning to get my, my brain scanned um, by psychopath researchers to see exactly how I fit into their tests, because, you know, there, there is actually a, a series of MRIs that, that are done um, to diagnose people, not least in positions of power, but also, um, you know, people with the dark triad, things that I talked about previously. And, and it is fascinating because you can score people on this. So uh, if you show psychopaths an image of you know children being abused, animals being tortured, their brains are basically a desert. They they don't react, which is which is fascinating because ours are are automatically reactive. But the flip side of this, and this is the part I love, is when they tell the psychopaths, try to feel empathy, try to imagine what it would be like to care about those animals or those children. Their MRI scans are basically identical to a normal person, and it helps explain why psychopaths who are functional, as they're called are good actually at rising the ranks because they can turn it on and turn it off. But the, the insight is that by default, it's switched off. So yes, I, I, I would love access to an MRI machine because I think, I think scanning Vladimir Putin's brain uh, would yield a lot of important insights. Yeah, I mean, it. I think uh, you, you, you write about him being topless. I think that might make some sense. What is it in his brain that makes him think that being topless is such a good thing. Well, anyway, a wonderful conversation. Brian Class, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. A book came out late last year. It's done very well, and it's particularly relevant today uh, in our current international crisis. Brian, in addition to Corruptible, uh, what else should people be reading in March 2022? There's two books uh, that I'd recommend. Uh, one is 4,000 Weeks, which is a, a strange one for me to, to sort of pick up on, but it's a, it's a book sort of referencing the fact that if you live 80 years, uh, you've got 4,000 weeks on the planet. And uh, I think after the pandemic, a lot by? of us, are, what'd you say? Who's it by? Oh, it's uh, Oliver. Uh, what is his surname? Uh, let me, let me look it up. Sorry. <laughs> it's uh, Oliver Berkman. I didn't want to say the yeah, wrong name. British, and I'm yeah. actually going to recommend another book by an Oliver, uh, which is Oliver Bullo, uh, who's just got a book out. I think it's maybe today or in the next couple of days uh, called Butler to the World. That is yeah, and, uh, he's actually going to be on the show. Well, there you go. So I've, I've, I've plugged one uh, of your next guests. About, um, financial corruption, which is a, another element, I, I guess, in, uh, in uh, Brian, uh, uh, Brian's uh, new book, Corruptibles, perhaps the heart of the corruptibility of the modern world. Brian, wonderful uh, conversation. Thank you so much. Final question, Brian Class, the author of Corruptible. Brian, um, who runs the world? Who's in charge these days? Way too many power-hungry psychopaths and narcissists, unfortunately. <laughs> That's what I would say. 